welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment, visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where you will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Let's get into today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Get your pad of paper and two pens ready for the aha moments. Today, we are going to have a very interesting topic. This is going to be exciting. It's going to be information loaded, and it's going to have a lot of things that you're going to be able to apply to your business as you serve from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. And it's about the feeling economy and how humans can effectively partner with advanced artificial intelligence in the coming feeling economy. That's a lot of stuff to put together. And the good news is, is we have somebody who can disambiguate this for us. His name is Roland T. Rust. He's a distinguished university professor, the David Bruce Smith Chair in Marketing, and founder and executive director of the Center of Excellence and Service at the Robert H. Smith School of Business, University of Maryland. As an award-winning writer and researcher, Roland has edited several major journals and consulted with American Airlines, AT&T, DuPont, Eli Lilly, Felix, Lockheed Martin, Microsoft, NASA, and Sony, among many companies worldwide. Ming Huai Huang is... Um, I believe that's a partner of his, is a distinguished uh, research fellow at the Center of Excellence at the same school of business. And I can also share with you that that is Roland's co-author. So I'll tell you a little bit about them. Uh, They are, uh, as I said, a distinguished research fellow at the Center of Excellence and Service at that same Robert H. Smith School of Business, University of Maryland, and a distinguished professor, Department of Information Management, College of Management, National Taiwan University, um, and is a leading research and frequent con- researcher and frequent contributor to both academic and managerial journals and artificial intelligence and service. She is also the editor and ch- chief elect of the Journal of Service Research. So I'm just sharing this with you to let you know who Roland works with. And together, they have created a new book, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. It's called The Field economy how artificial intelligence is creating the era of empathy and it is produced by springer international publishing it's available on amazon for right now i'd like to introduce you to roland t rust roland come on in the weather's fine i'm here all right so i just read off this very impressive bio that I'm not even sure I'm worthy to be here, and it's my show. So uh, what do we like to do here before we dive in? And I know you have a lot of great stuff to download to us today. I read off that bio. tells us some of what you're up to right now, which is great, a little bit about your background. But tell us a bit about your journey so that our listeners can understand what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion the way you do it. Sure. Yeah, I really um, started out uh, in mathematics, which is very uh, unusual perhaps for somebody in my field, but uh, but I started out in mathematics. But eventually the thing that really turned me on was service. And that was uh, a very good career move for me because the service economy is actually uh, the vast majority of the economy today. And so uh, we kind of got in uh, at the time when that was really just growing. And so that was really um, a a good move. But then um, what I've been most interested in is what makes service change. And what makes service change more than anything else is technology. And the big thing that's happening right now in technology is artificial intelligence. So Minghui and I have been working on technology issues and how they affect business for, for quite some time. And uh, this book is the, uh, the latest uh, result of that. Awesome. That's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, especially 
with some shifts we're seeing in the economy with everything that's happened over the past year, some political changes and agenda changes and everything else, technology is becoming so much more involved in service, especially when we've physically lost touch to the degree that we used to have just a year ago and to the degree to which even once we deal with this buckets and floating around, some of that's never really going to come back. And the reason I say that is because over the past year, we've been programmed to do all this social distancing stuff, and we've been conditioned to be so much more concerned about touching things and being in the same room as people and even interacting with people. And that has actually opened the floodgates to answering questions like, well, if I can't have people in my physical plants, how can I still render these services? If I can't afford the people because of the economy shift, how do I still render the customer service? And I believe that artificial intelligence and things like that are going to become much more prime and they're going to go undergo a very complex and very rapid pace of development. So that's actually kind of why I wanted to have you here today, Roland. But first of all, could we please identify some terms? Explain to me what you mean by this phrase, feeling economy. And I'm wondering if I just touched on it. Um, Yeah, what we really mean by the feeling economy is an economy in which feeling tasks are more important than thinking tasks. Uh And that sounds really weird to people because we've been in the thinking economy for, you know, decades. And uh, there have really been two major shifts related to technology and artificial intelligence in the last 150 years or so. The first was a shift away from things like mining and manufacturing uh, and um, things like farming even. Uh, And and those um, tasks, a lot of those kinds of heavy physical sort of tasks were taken over by AI really early on. So for example, if you go into a car factory, uh, I I visited a car factory in China in 1998, and they were building every car basically by hand. The factories were full of people and they were all making the cars one piece at a time. If you go into China today, or if you go to Japan, or if you go to the United States and take a look at what's happening now, it's totally different. It's totally different. Uh, All the the cars are being made by robots. And so that was the first shift. The first shift was, you know, sorry, you can't be a factory worker anymore. You've got to, you know, study STEM skills and become a thinking person. And uh, that was the first shift. And of course, a lot of people were kind of left out by that. You know, you, you saw a lot of the people that used to work in the factories or used to work on the farms, used to work in the mines. Those parts of uh, the country are in trouble because those people have lost their jobs. And now, before we've even fully solved that transformation, we're now seeing a second transformation. And the second transformation is even more important because what it's doing is it's getting rid of thinking tasks. So you have things like IBM Watson, for example, uh, doing AI for companies. And you you have that uh, as as something that is um, taking people away from those tasks that they used to do, those analytical tasks. And uh, Minghui and I did a, a study using government data to find out what was happening in the economy because we expected to see that and in fact we did see that Uh, but what surprised us even us was that um, it's really happening faster than we expected that uh, and and it's happening across the board so for example somebody like a financial analyst when you think of a financial analyst as being very technical yeah right but we were able to show that the importance of feeling tasks for that job have increased dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. And uh, the the degree to which that was true really surprised even us. Surprises me a little bit too, because the last thing I think of when I think of financial analysts is feelings. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying that the moment you say the words financial analyst to me, I don't even see a person, I see a spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that, that's right. Well, but, um, you know, I was presenting this at a conference uh, uh, about a year ago before the, the pandemic hit. And, um, and I, a person who was a financial analyst uh, from one of the major financial companies came up to me after the talk and he said, you know, what you're saying is absolutely right. You know, in my job, I don't really do those technical things anymore. I let it, the AI do that. And what I do is I basically hold hands. You know, I try to reassure people when the market goes down and try to not have them do crazy stuff. Uh, so, you know, that person has become much more of a um, much more of a feeling person, much more of an interpersonal relationship person instead of a technical person. And it changes uh, who is going to succeed in that job. You know, the, the technical geek, the, the sort of stereotypical Silicon Valley geek, you know, like uh, you see in, in some TV sitcoms. I mean, those those people are in trouble now because, yeah. uh, you know, they may not have the people skills to be able to get the job done. Right. And, you know, we're at a point right now, and I alluded to this earlier, where people are looking for that human connection. Uh, regardless of what approach you take to that issue, the fact is it's just there. And we, we've seen enough about artificial intelligence. I can give you a real simple, I mean, you know this better than I do, but for our listeners, a real simple example of artificial intelligence is the use of marketing bots. So you go to somebody's Facebook page and you go to their, uh, you go to the chat window for their business page and you find yourself communicating with a bot. You go to the chat window on a website, which you're used to the idea there's a person behind there, but a lot of times you end up speaking with a scripted bot and you're asking for help and they keep saying, come to my events. So the perceptions of artificial intelligence are that it, well, it's still kind of artificial. So what I wanna do is I wanna get into that a little bit and show that, uh, you know, show how artificial intelligence can improve and how it can be part of the feeling economy. So if you could tell us about that, because you say that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a real big change, not just a trend, but actually a change in the economy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's right. And um, really, um, you know, it, we're, we're seeing this uh, major change at, as a, as a result of AI getting good at the things that we used to be better at. And uh, so, you know, the chatbot idea is uh, is perfect because that's that's where a computer is trying to do people work, and it's not usually very good right now. Yeah. Um, but it's the reason that they do it is because it's cheaper. So, in other words, AI doesn't have to be better than people; it just has to be sort of almost as good, but cheaper, and and that will get the job done. Uh, companies will still adopt it because they'll make money. They may not make quite as much revenue, but their costs will go down. Right. Yeah. Uh, and another example is artificial intelligence transcripts. I've tried to get transcripts done of recordings using artificial intelligence offerings, and I've gotten the results back and wondering, am I Am I delirious? Do I have some sort of uh, like personality disconnect disorder or something? There's no way in hell I said some of the crap I'm reading right now. And uh, and who are these five people that are being identified as the interlocutor? I only remember one other person being in this conversation, which is why which is why for now for my transcript needs I send them all to zoomscribe.com, uh, where I get a human being who's a native English speaker. Who uh, you know, one member of their you know, they have, you know their team are native speaking English speakers, uh, and they can get me something turned around at a very reasonable rate that's going to come back in the same version of American English that I speak, give or take a word or two. Uh, but these artificial intelligence transcripts, holy heck! So at the same time. I believe that technology has a role to play in helping us be more efficient about things that used to take us a lot of time. One example is note-taking. We record more of our stuff, but then we still need the written word. So we can push a button and have a machine give us back accurately what we said. Yeah, and the machines are getting better and better at that, and they'll eventually be very good. But right now, they still have some problems. And the problem that they have is they don't understand context. 
you know, yeah. so that that's the that's the issue. I mean, they may know what words you're using, but they don't know how to put them together because they don't understand what the words are all about. They don't understand the the situation that you're describing. They don't understand the context. That because that requires uh, common sense, and uh, humans are great at common sense. They're they're fantastic. I mean, uh, babies are born with some degree of common sense. So um, you know that is is something that uh, is a human skill that will last for a little while. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that uh, humans need to be uh, better at than AI if they want to survive. You know, but even eventually there will be something called uh, uh, general intelligence that AI uh, achieves. And uh, at, at that point, uh, AI will have the ability to uh, put together some things in terms of common sense. And at that point, that pushes people more and more and more to the interpersonal side, the feeling side, because one thing that a computer can't do is feel. Yeah, here's another thing. And I was just, yesterday when I was doing some of my recreational reading, I was getting into different dialects around the United States. See, I'm one of those people that if you put me on the Wikipedia, I can get really dangerous really quickly. I can read one article. And by the time I finished that one article, I've opened up 14 other articles it was linked to in separate browser tabs. And then each one has its own rabbit hole. So yesterday, I think I sat there and read about 30 different dialects of American English. I live in Las Vegas. I've been here for almost eight years. You know how many people have just hearing me speak without before we'd even been introduced just walked up to me and said hey are you from pittsburgh <laughs> yeah that's good i don't think i have an accent but apparently um, i do it, it's not really noticeable to me that's interesting that people say that they must uh you're not you're, have... you're not geographically too far from pittsburgh they're actually in, in some of my studies show that based on where you're physically located um where you've probably been located at least for a while and have been somewhat acclimated to where you are there are overlaps between the uh, bet between the dialects so if i say jag off you probably know what i mean right yeah exactly and, um, and i grew up in indiana so i grew up in indiana live uh -huh. in the dc area now and uh halfway between those is pittsburgh <laughs> yeah 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 so that so that so that dialect spread kind of actually overlaps with the two dialects in those two areas you just described mm -hmm. And if, and in fact, and in fact, they're influenced by some of the same cultures because the same waves of immigration to the United States a little over a hundred years ago, when we began our kickstart version of the Industrial Revolution, came from those same areas in Central and Eastern Europe. So a lot of the loan words and a lot of the implied meanings are common to all three of those areas. But the thing is, does a machine designed by somebody in Houston know that? Yeah. Uh, uh, and Pittsburgh is an interesting case because uh, that's really a very good example of these two shifts, you know, because Pittsburgh was a big steel town. Yep. And um, then what happened was as the steel mills started to be taken over basically by, uh, by automation and artificial intelligence and, and to some degree also uh, overseas, uh, uh, you know, cheaper, uh, steel mills overseas but uh, but that um, that was something that really drove Pittsburgh to the next stage of the uh, development which was the, uh, basically moving to service you know more cleaner yeah. industries yeah yeah in, fa in fact in fact I grew up not too far from a town called Denora, Pennsylvania and anybody who's involved in environmental issues has probably heard of the Denora smog mm-hmm my yep. grandfather was a foreman in one of those mills that caused it. Mm -hmm. He was stuck there while it happened. It probably shortened his life by about five years because he was exposed to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and today, uh, Pittsburgh is actually one of the places where AI is uh, advancing because you have Carnegie Mellon right there. 
And so uh, some of the Carnegie Mellon researchers are, are bringing AI to the fore now in, in the Pittsburgh region. So it's interesting yeah. that Pittsburgh is such a microcosm of really this big shift that's happening. Well, there are a couple shifts in Pittsburgh. I mean, one of which is it's become a leader when it comes to healthcare. And yeah. you know, te technology and online technology is also a really big industry there. In fact, a lot of the former steel mills have actually been torn down and replaced by or retrofitted as uh, technology parks. Yeah, there's a lot of retrofitting going on right now in, in the economy. And we're going to see more uh, because, uh, as I say, this, this shift is, is very dramatic and very extreme. Yeah, it is. So we have a number of different places we can go in the rest of our time together here. And you give me a few points. So I'm going to go through some of them. Uh, you say, and this is of interest to a number of our listeners, because we have a number of listeners that are very interested in this topic, that the feeling economy will be a time of unprecedented power and influence for women. Why do you say that? Well, uh, it's mainly because women, on average, tend to be better at uh, empathy. Okay. And uh, the reason for that is really based on brain physiology, that uh, men have brains that are more uh, hemispherically specialized uh, and, and women less so, on average, on average. Uh, you know, there are huge differences within gender. So, for example, there, there can be a very empathetic man, there can be a very uh, technical, uh, technically capable woman, you know, the... That happens, but on average, women are more capable on the empathy side. And so yeah. uh, what, what happened was, if you think about it in terms of these big shifts, in the physical economy, men had a big advantage because they were bigger. You know, it's a, it a simple physical advantage. Uh, and so women were, were definitely uh, kind of kept down at that particular time. They, they weren't able to have an equal role in society. But then as the thinking economy came in, women were just as good at, at thinking as men for the most part. And so, um, you know, you have um, a huge advance in, in women uh, in terms of uh, income, in terms of education, et cetera, in the thinking economy. And now uh, what we believe is that the feeling economy will accelerate that. And in fact, women will pass men in terms of being, being more likely to be the people that are in charge. And you're seeing that already in uh, various uh, countries of the world. If you take a look at the countries of the world that are most friendly to women, um, those countries tend to have a GDP that's several times as large as the average GDP in the world. Can you, can you name a couple countries for me just so that we can visually see this? Uh, sure. Uh, Germany, the United States, uh, uh -huh. all, all of Scandinavia. Um, you know, those are those are uh, countries that, uh, for example, New Zealand. Uh, you take a look at, at New Zealand. It's run by a woman, Jacinda Ardern, and what she was really good at in the pandemic was empathy. So, for example, one thing she did was she said, "Okay, we're going to officially name uh, the Easter Bunny to be an essential worker." Okay. So the, so the kids didn't get freaked out. You know, they said they, they can still work. The, the, the Easter Bunny can still work. And um, so, you know, that is the sort of empathy that you're not going to get from very many men. That's, that's very, very unusual. And uh, also uh, in, in Taiwan, where uh, my wife and co-author Minghui is from, um, it's run by a woman. Uh, the prime minister is a woman. She has a... a, a an epidemiological or health background. And uh, Taiwan has done a, a fantastic job with the pandemic, much better than let's say the United States or even Western Europe. So, um, you know, these, uh, the, the ability of, of women to understand and empathize and then do appropriate things that, that actually help people or make them feel better. Uh, that's what we're seeing more and more. And, and, uh, so we're likely to see more and more women in major positions like that. For example, you know, Germany is, is uh, one of the top uh, countries in the world in terms of uh, their economics. And uh, they're, they're run by a woman, have been for years. Okay. Yeah, I, 
And I think when you look at the larger picture of what's going on right now, over the past year, Roland, we've had this cataclysmic change in the trajectory of how everything was going. Uh, I pointed out early on that one of the silver linings of the of the uh, coronavirus thing was that this resistance to the idea of virtual and remote work was going to get blown right out of the water because now it's either you let your people work from home or they don't work for you at all. That's right. And I've been a big advocate for remote work for a long time. Uh, ever since when I was in corporate, uh, I have a I have a story of. It was December of 2002, and I was living in Pittsburgh at the time. Uh, we had gotten this freak snowstorm that had not been predicted. Uh, mm -hmm. they, there was nothing in the news the night before it said there was a snowstorm coming. Woke up, there were five inches of snow on the ground. So, because it wasn't predicted, wasn't expected, the roads weren't getting worked on the way they normally should. I lived an hour from where I worked. I could not physically get there because they had not come to plow my road. Yeah. In the meantime, I was um, I was involved in uh, two departments. I worked for two departments at the company I worked for, both of which had live events going on that day that needed to be rescheduled, and I was the person to do it. So, what do you think I, as a conscientious person, did? I logged on to the, through the VPN network and and I used my home phone and I made the I made the necessary arrangements. And what do you think that got me? Uh, well, you, you, they probably um, gave you a lot of credit for that. If they no, they didn't. No they didn't, <laughs> no, they didn't. No, they didn't give me a lot of credit. They told me they told me that uh, that I would I, that I had a choice of either taking a vacation day or getting written up for it because I violated uh, a work from home policy. Oh boy, that that's and, crazy. And and you know where, you know where that came from? It came from some some guy and senior management who just had to show off the fact that his title had the word chief in it and he could do something about something. I, I, I still, I mean, I, I said the word jag off earlier. I hope he's listening. So he knows that I, th I think he's one to this day, but <laughs> the reason I bring, the reason I bring this up is because there was absolutely no empathy there whatsoever. And, uh, and, and you know what else I was told? I was told, well, you should have had your backup person do it. Well, meanwhile, this person they kept insisting was my backup person refused to back me up because she said it wasn't her job and she was tired of being put upon being told to do other people's jobs. So what you had across the board was there was no empathy toward her either. There was no outreach to her to help her feel good about the idea of being a team player because, and I had conversations with her about it and she had a long list of grievances about her efforts to be a team player and being punished for it. Yeah. Because well, it wasn't her job. So there was no empathy there. There was no human feeling. You want to talk about a feeling economy? It wasn't there. Now, hopefully, uh, hopefully in the past 20 years, because that company is still there. In fact, they've grown considerably. They're doing very good, actually. I hope that within their management styles, they've developed a lot more empathy. And if you want to go to another point, I, I usually check them out about once a year just to see what they're up to. And I've noticed that their senior management team is now mostly female. Yeah, that doesn't. So it's funny. So I, so I asked this for a reason. I was actually mm -hmm. going here. I just didn't want to announce it up front. Yeah, no, that that doesn't surprise me at all. And in fact, uh, if men want to be successful in that kind of environment, they're going to have to be more of what used to be called feminine. They're going to have yeah. to show some of these uh, more feminine traits, like empathy. They're going to have to show that and not think about it as being weak or you know it's not masculine or whatever. Uh, people are going to have to get used to that. They're gonna to have to get good at it. Yeah, part of my role in in working with small businesses is uh, is while I don't usually carry the label coach because then it puts connotations on me, I end up doing some of that work without labeling it coaching. So I had a situation a few months ago where it was my client had some concerns about one of their team members and their performance. And that team member had some concerns about the clients and the demands that client was putting upon the team member. So uh, what I did is using as much empathy as I could drum up, I listened to what they said. I allowed them to process what they had to say about each other without passing any judgment, without defending one to the other or anything like that. And very subtly, 
I just planted the seed with both of them that what would probably really solve it is if they just took 10 minutes to speak with each other. Next thing you know, I heard from both of them. Hey, I just spoke with, uh, you know, you know, insert the other person's name. And uh, it was a really awesome conversation. I didn't actually yeah. tell them to do that. I just merely gently suggested that perhaps a direct conversation could be helpful. But what I did there is I removed any judgment from the conversation and I gave both of them the opportunity to speak freely to someone they could trust speaking from their truth and what they were feeling. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly what empathy is. I mean, yeah. um, empathy really involves a couple of different things. It involves at least understanding what the other person is doing. You know, where are they coming from? You have to understand where they're coming from. Um, but ideally, empathy goes even deeper than that. Because ideally, empathy means you actually feel what the other person's feeling. In both cases, I could. Because I, I know what it's like to be a client who feels frustrated because they're not getting what they need from the person they're paying. And I know what it feels like to have a client who's not giving me what I need to do my job. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and in none of those cases was it ever a value judgment about the person. And my experience has taught me that almost every time that happens, there's just simply a misalignment of understanding of what the goals are. Mm -hmm. And it can be and it can be solved usually as simple as that. Now, if one or the other parties is just a jerk, well, that's a different conversation. But I found the majority of cases it's actually not. Yeah, I think uh, usually when you really understand somebody, then you don't think they're a jerk. That's usually yeah. how it works. Yeah. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to um, you know change the subject a little bit. And one thing we've been hearing about a lot the past few years is STEM. It's a very hot thing right now. It's been for years, and I think that's great. Is uh, Now, is it going to become obsolete at some point? I thought I um, heard you say something like that when I was checking you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to try to be uh, completely accurate in what I say here. Go ahead. Take um, your time. We but, got it. Um, STEM is going to be even more important than ever. Now, okay, that sounds like I'm uh, contradicting myself. But here's the thing. STEM is going to be something that's done by AI. So if we think about a team of people or a team in a company, I, I shouldn't say a team of people because some people on the team are going to be AI. So you've got, you've got AI as part of the team collaborating with the people part of the team. And typically the AI part will do the more technical stuff and the people will do the more people-facing part. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is the STEM may not go away, but there's going to be a big change in it. Did I hear that well, correctly? Yeah, uh, and, and what that means for humans, and most of us are humans, uh, what that I like means to think for so. humans <laughs> is, is that, um, you know, maybe taking STEM courses is not the road to success that we think it is right now. It would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago would have been great. But today, it may be not its time. Because you don't want to be going into a job that requires all these skills that can be immediately taken over by AI. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, in one area I could think of, because especially we're talking about STEM, medical research, you can see a computer doing a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and what's driving it is something that I actually advocate, which is reducing and ultimately eliminating animal testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, we've gotten to the point, I think, where we've studied and maimed and tortured enough animals that we know what's going to happen. I mean, we're now at a point with artificial intelligence, I believe, and tell me if I'm incorrect, where we could actually use a computer program to simulate a living being so that we can predict impacts and reactions. Are oh, we pretty much there at that point? Yeah, that's being done. So, 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 so we, so, so, if we're doing this right, we should never have to to experiment on a cat again because we can create the cat using a computer program and we, we and, can, uh, and generate what the responses and the reactions would be. We can almost do that. Okay. Um, I mean, uh, what what's happening right now is, uh, you know, the problem is the brain is very complicated. Yeah. And uh, even a small animal has a very complicated brain uh, compared to uh, the kind of computer programs that we usually build. 
Don't I know it? I've, I don't I know it. I'm owned by two cats. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, Princess Alessandra, who supervises me by sitting on my desk and staring at me all day, wanted me to bring up that point because she wants an end to all that stuff. Yeah. So um, anyway, let me, um, let me talk a little bit about, um, about the technology of this. It's called a digital twin. Okay. The idea is to be able to model inside the computer some physical thing. And right now it's being done a lot for things like, uh, for example, the uh, companies that are trying to make uh, vaccines. Yeah. They, they can do a lot of that um, computer modeling of, uh, you know, what will happen if they create a molecule that looks like this, how is it going to interact with the COVID uh, mm -hmm. virus you know so so that's uh, that's something that is already being done of course uh, taking that and applying it to biological beings is one uh, order of magnitude greater than that maybe more than one order of magnitude it's uh, it's a much harder thing to do but that's where we're headed and what some science fiction writers are talking about is the idea of taking your essence and putting it into digital form in other words, uh, suppose, suppose you can figure out every neural connection that you have and all your, your uh, bodily uh, reactions and you actually put that in a computer. Uh, that is where we're headed. We're not there yet. It'll take a while. It'll take uh, probably 20 years before uh, we can think about that uh, uh, happening. But, uh, but that's, that's the direction we're headed. And there, there are some uh, people that uh, have talked about uh, a concept called the singularity. The singularity is when AI becomes smarter than us at everything. And at that point, you know, it's really hard for us to compete. And so uh, what some uh, people have said, like Ray Kurzweil, the guy who came up with the concept of the singularity or at least popularized it. You know, Ray, Ray Kurzweil says that to succeed as uh, a species, we're going to have to become cyborgs. We're going to have to become part human and part AI. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to compete. It's some my, serious Terminator stuff we're telling us. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and my feeling is that's not even going to happen. It's not good enough. Because if, if you have two entities, one entity is half human and half AI, and the other entity is all AI, the all AI one will win after the singularity. So uh, from the standpoint of natural selection, those things will naturally select over us, in my uh -huh. opinion. Now that's, that's scary, but fortunately we've got decades to, before we have to really worry about that. But you know, uh, I'm teaching class you know, with students that are in their 20s. And um, these students, you know, 30 years from now when AI is perhaps at that level, they're gonna still be in the workforce. And so I'm, I'm warning you, I'm saying, look, this is what's gonna happen. You guys gotta really uh, pay attention and try to hold off AI as long as you can, you know, do the things where you have a differential advantage over AI and that's the feeling part. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot to think about, let me tell you. Yeah, wow. it's, it's kind of, kind of uh, scary, but you know, um, the future always looks like science fiction. You know, the today's future looks like science fiction to 1880. Yeah. You know, there's something I like to point out to people. One of the things that we've had debates about lately is, of course, um, the coal industry, and we've seen how uh, we've seen how uh, a few pockets of areas in the United States where the coal industry is very important can sway elections because it's yep. a linchpin. Now, I, I'm going to inject a little bit of my own thoughts into all this, and it's going to make my point, actually. I believe that you can't just shut down the coal industry because you because what I don't see is there's any plan to transition those workers, skilled and unskilled, and those communities into something else. You can't just say we're taking away your, your manner of living uh, and to hell with you. If you don't like it, go move somewhere else. That, that, that's not how you treat, that's not empathetic. Uh, however, 
what we can look at is how can we evolve coal? Now, let me go back 100 years. I saw some newspapers from right around the turn of the 20th century, and there was a huge fear that the earth was going to run out of coal. They were predicting that within 10 years, there'd be no more coal left in the world. And there was panic that we were going to get thrown right back into the Stone Age because almost everything that we had accomplished in terms of technology, industry, and everything else went back to coal. Yeah. Now you have the coal industry that to a certain degree is on life support because not a lot of stuff uses coal anymore. And there's still going to be coal left in the ground after they're done using it. It's true. And, and I think it's just going to be the same thing with oil. We've heard about peak oil. Uh, we've, and we have the debate about becoming energy independent. My belief is the sooner that uh, the United States, for instance, becomes fully energy independent, we don't have to rely on anybody else for anything, the faster we can get to green energy because we can evolve it in a way that is both measured and empathetic. Now, let me link to one other train train here and i know i'm building a daisy chain of things for you to give me your thoughts on mm -hmm. let's think about flat screen tvs 20 years ago flat screen tv was an elite toy for the wealthy uh you the average household if they wanted a flat screen tv they had to save up a year and a half for it but now go in a store try and find yourself a console tv try and find a tv that has a curve on it try and find a tv that's not plasma try and find a tv that can't also be used as a computer monitor because they're substantially the same thing yep and true. what evolved that it was a combination of the inexorable drive and the and evolution of technology and the willingness of some people to jump first to create the sustainability now I'm looking back at this and aside from the fact that some people probably had to be retrained in their jobs or their companies may have been merged with some other company, I don't recall a lot of uh, depression level dislocation over the evolution of the television. Um, yeah, well the television was a lot like the radio um, yeah. really in terms of uh, how, how that uh, worked technologically. So uh, in fact, the, the, the radio really uh, the person who really uh, invented that, people say it was Barconi, but really it was Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Well, te well, Tesla invented everything that everybody else is given credit for. That's a separate yeah. conversation. We could have you back for a whole hour on that. <laughs> yeah. But one thing you brought up, which I think is really crucial, is this idea of retraining. You know, you were pointing out the people in the coal industry uh, areas that... Uh, which is some of my family, by the way. So I have a personal feeling about this. Yeah. So they they're they're having having trouble because that industry no longer really exists in the same way. Uh, and so really, what uh, the government needed to do, but didn't particularly, was they needed to create a uh, a very careful, carefully thought out retraining plan for the people who were left behind by the previous transformation. But now, of course, we got this new transformation, which means that uh, now we have to think about retraining the thinking workers. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that is something because uh, now we have to merge training with, with empathy. As I said earlier in our conversation, uh, when you say financial analyst, I, I don't even think of a person, I think of a spreadsheet. Right. That's what immediately comes to mind is I see, I see the green bar at the top and the rows and the columns with numbers in them. Mm-hmm. So there is an empathetic disconnection there. Remember, I also qualified that by saying there's nothing wrong with financial analysts. I think they're great people and everything else. I just don't see the person. I see the spreadsheet that they're using. Yeah. And there's, a human, people... there's a human being behind that who's going to have feelings, even as they're calculating their numbers, especially if their calculations are bringing up bad news. Right. Now, there, there are some companies that are, that are putting out ads that play on this. Uh, for example, there, there's one that is a financial company that they, they show somebody going into uh, an office and sitting on the desk of the, of the, uh, the, the person in the office is a, uh, an AI machine. Yeah. And, and he says, I'd like to introduce you to Techie. And, um, and Techie then does some rather clumsy and unempathetic things. And the, the, the story there is we really need that 
human touch. We need the feeling, we need the empathy. That's what really adds value. And so uh, they're, they're taking advantage of this trend toward uh, more AI use, and they're pointing out how humans can survive. Yeah. Now, linking that to recent current events, uh, one of the things that's been going on for several years now is the push to uh, mandate higher minimum wages and all the economic dislocation that that's going to lead to and some of the case studies from places where it's already been done and how it's actually adversely impacted in some ways the very people that it was supposed to help. I'm going to I'm going to create for our, our listeners a visual representation of this. You go to a fast food place and because they can't afford to pay the the person behind the cashier's stand $15 an hour, they're going to replace that person with a touch screen machine. That's exactly right. You're already seeing that in a lot of, uh, yeah. especially low end restaurants. Because the, the, the lower end a restaurant is, the more it's uh, efficiency and cost reduction that makes the profit. And so um, they, they try to replace people as often as they can. And of course, the COVID situation has just sped everything up because now you really don't want people in there. You, you want to have machines and people don't want to touch other people right now. So this is all sped up the move to AI. And to some degree that can cause some, and this I think it's a good place to go. And there's one other question I want to ask before we wrap up here, that's going to be probably even a little more edgy, which I'm looking forward to actually. Uh, you know, you think about it from the consumer's perspective, when I order from restaurants and I've written about this on blogs and I've, shared this on other episodes of business creators radio show uh i have a practice where there's a few places there's a few restaurants i go to regularly uh regularly to the point where when i walk in the chances are two or three people are going to are going to recognize me uh i mean it's to the point where even during the various phases of this whole COVID thing that's been going on here in nevada uh when we've been in and out of the part where yeah you can go to a restaurant but you have to place reservations in advance i don't have to place reservations because all i have to do is walk in and say hey um how's your reservation situation are you full or can i reserve right now and before the person who's taking the reservations even pulls out their little sheet usually the server who knows my order by heart comes and runs over and says oh he'll be out of here in 30 minutes we already know what he wants just go ahead and seat him <laughs> the reason i bring that That's up is because now you're going to create a certain level of trepidation that if somebody wants their, if they want to order their hamburger, but they do not want mayonnaise on it, they may not see an option that allows them to craft it exactly the way that they could craft it if they were standing at the counter speaking with a human being. And they're afraid that after all that process of waiting and the delivery and everything else, their hamburgers and have mayonnaise all over it. Yeah. Because they didn't have the opportunity to convey to a human being with that level of computer processing between your ears, hold the mayo. That's right. And, and the right. interface that was designed, the artificial intelligence interface that was designed cannot comprehend that. Like, uh, <laughs> I'll give you an example. When I, when I go to Subway, uh, I have, a, a, I have a, a Subway sandwich I created myself. Uh, it's based on their veggie sub, but I have it created a certain way. And I, and I have the people, the one I go to train that I want exactly four banana peppers on my sandwich and I want them spread out evenly. The reason is because I know what banana peppers taste like and I know what percentage of the flavor I want to be the banana pepper. Oh, that's very specific. Now, yeah. Now imagine yeah. explaining that to a machine. Uh, I don't think very many machines are going to get that. <laughs> There's the trepidation right there. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. So does well, the feeling economy involve resolving that issue so that I can feel comfortable going to a computer screen in my home and ordering that sandwich and knowing it's going to have four evenly placed banana peppers? Well, sometimes at the current level of technology, you may need that person involved. Yeah. So what you're saying is we may need a fail safe in there where if need be, we can bring in a human being to do the personal touch while at the same time allowing the technology to efficiently handle the people say well just you know just give me the number eight with a coke yeah um th th that's true i mean that that is something that is um is happening and it is is on the way for sure 
um, yeah, the, the computers are simply gonna have more trouble dealing with those sorts of things. And, uh, humans are, are necessarily involved. Yeah. Okay, all right. So um, this is a question I originally wasn't actually going to include this because I attempt as much as possible to avoid anything political on this show. And even if we do name things like presidents or things like that, we do it within uh, analysis of an entrepreneurial related issue. I reread the question and I realized that this actually fits if it's handled a certain way, because the way you worded it is actually kind of a zinger. So I'm kind of excited about this one. Here goes. Is there evidence in recent political elections that empathy is now key and rationality is becoming less important? Yeah, I think both things. And, and you, you see that happening really in the recent presidential elections. If you go back yeah. to 2016, uh, we contend that the reason Trump won was that he indicated empathy toward the people who were left out by the thinking economy. Right. And um, uh, those people were upset. They were unhappy. He identified their unhappiness. That's empathy. Yeah. And uh, so that was uh, why he won. And then, of course, when uh, and he was sailing along, everything looked like he was going to be reelected. And yeah. then you had COVID happen. Uh -huh. And suddenly uh, Trump was revealed as not having enough empathy about COVID. And I think that was why Biden won the election. I've spoken with a lot of people who believe things along those lines. Um, I also uh, believe that there was a lack, I think there was a lack of empathy all the way across the board. I think certain things were politicized. I think there were places where Trump tried to help and he was just automatically labeled a certain way because they didn't like him. I think there are things he did that tried to help, and because they fought him on it, it actually made his efforts less effective. And I also believe that there's plenty of that to go around. It's not just the president. I think one of the things we discovered uh, over the process of COVID is while everybody was focused on who's the president, what's the president doing, they didn't recognize the influence their own state governor had in their daily lives because it oh, wasn't yeah. front and center. Yeah. So the moment the Trump administration comes out with the reopening plan and they say, these are guidelines, you states handle it as you see fit, call us if you need anything. Then you got to see there's a whole layer of power in this country that nobody was really paying attention to. And uh, a few governors came out and they, they turned out to be superstars. I'm not going to say which ones they are because that'll cause an argument. And then you saw some that, oh my God, how do these people ever slip under the radar? And different people have opposite views on who I mean if I start naming names. But you had, I mean, if you want to talk about empathy, there's enough back and forth on that to go across the board for days. Well, I think clearly uh, you can find uh, people who were very empathetic and uh, very effective uh, in, during the COVID uh, situation yeah. on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Both Republicans and Democrats. I agree oh, I agree. That, I agree that the, um, what, what we've really seen is uh, that, that this is um, getting um, more and more uh, local. So in yeah. other words, it's not just the federal government, the mayors and the governors are very important players in this now. Yeah, I, th I think th I think there's something to it. Now, I'm only relating what I've been, what has been shared with me, and this is at the uh, Nevada level. So, cause I live in Nevada, Las Vegas, and mm -hmm. you know, we have, uh, you know, compared to the level of draconianness, if that's a word, of lockdowns and restrictions, Nevada has actually had a comparatively light. It's still very rankling because, you know, by nature, regardless of whether you call us a blue state or a red state, we are the type of state where people walk around casually with guns strapped to their waist, and a lot of them happen to be liberals and leftists. Uh, I mean, you go to the you go to the Halloween party on uh, Fremont Street <laughs> here in Las Vegas, and you have these. Uh, you have the people dressed up as Wonder Woman with uh, with a Glock strapped to their waist. I mean, it's uh, that gives you an idea that it's actually somewhat more of a libertarian, uh, we do as we want type culture, which is great. So any restriction is rankling. Yeah. And I do give our governor some credit 
for the fact that we have not we have avoided a lot of disasters we could have had. At the same time, I also know a lot of people who watch his speeches and his press conferences, and he comes across is that stern lecturing dad who can never be happy no matter if you brought home straight A's for for four years, he would lecture you on how you failed in school. <laughs> and uh, it just I mean, he just doesn't convey himself as the most warm, empathetic type person out there, even as he protested, he's doing it because he cares about us. No. So I think there's something about tonality, too. And I I, I know I know a few people who actually know our governor personally, and they say he's a, he's basically a big teddy bear. So I don't know I don't know for sure what to believe, except for the fact that perceptions and situations drive impressions of empathy. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, what somebody's like um, in personal life may be different from what they are like in in uh, public life. For yeah. example, Hillary Clinton in 2016. I mean, uh, according to some people who know her, she's a very kind and empathetic sort of person, but she yep. really came across as cold. Yeah. And um, if you come across as cold, that that loses in, in our current political environment. Well, that we can go right back to the coal miners and their impressions on that one. Um, and yeah, and you brought up you brought up uh, you know Trump's uh, fortunes and uh, and how perceptions of empathy drove that. And I agree with you that part of the key to his win in 2016 is he showed empathy toward people who felt like they were being left out. What I would add to that is many people in this country, I think, felt left out because over and over again, politicians showed up with their 10-point plans, and they didn't even get to point one before they went the opposite direction. Whereas when you look at it, and I noticed this at the time because I studied several candidates, uh, Trump being one of them, obviously, Hillary Clinton, uh, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, and some of the others. I compared their campaign websites. Everybody's websites except Trump had all kinds of detailed 10-point plans, policy papers, and everything else. Trump's campaign had uh, bullet points and announcements of the next rally. Yeah, that's right. And I, th and I think that was key to it because what he recognizes people were tired of plan plans. They just wanted to know stuff was going to get done. So he didn't come up with a treatise on the five-year plan to border security. He said, build the wall. Yeah, he, didn't say, he, didn't, he didn't say, let's create a plan to reduce the impact of lobbyists by regulating, he said, drain the swamp. So right. people could look at what he was saying and actually apply their own meanings to it. Build the wall could have literally meant build a wall. It also could have meant uh, buy a bunch of drones. It could have meant build a bunch of military bases. It could have meant a lot of things, but it all fell under the general header of border security. Sure. And, and to um, me, that was something empathetic because it allowed the human being who was receiving the message to infuse their own truth into it and come to believe it for their reasons, which I believe is a big part of empathy is when you allow the recipient's own truth into it and validate that one way or another. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that's yeah. Uh, that's certainly a winning strategy for politicians everywhere. Yeah, because and again, and I and, and I know people, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Greens, what have you. Uh, most of the people I know, anyway, are tired of ten-point plans because they never get past point one before they quote unquote lie. Because it's great as a politician to make a promise, then when you're in office, you find out what you can really do. Oh, that's uh, that's often true. Uh, it might not be true with Biden. Biden has so much, uh, so many years of experience. I think he knows what's uh, probably possible and what isn't. I hope so. I I, re I really hope so because I, uh, as I said, when I'm a pilot on a plane, I want I want the pilot to be wildly successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's very true. Yeah, and and to me, that's just an American statement. Whoever's flying the plane, I want them to have everything they need to deliver a nice flight experience, avoid turbulence as much as possible, and bring us to our destination smoothly, on time, and have the luggage be there when we go to the carousel. Yep. That's 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 all I really ask. Yeah, and um, uh, interestingly enough, um, you know, you're talking about flying a plane. One thing Southwest Airlines did was they said, we're not going to use the, uh, the automatic pilot. We're, you're going to actually fly the plane, and you're actually going to land it. And uh, what they were doing is they wanted people not to have a distance between 
the pilot and the plane. They wanted them to be one entity. Ooh. And it's interesting that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, Southwest has never had a fatal accident. No, not, not that I'm aware of. Wow. See, we could go on forever and ever. Unfortunately, we're at the top of the hour. So what I'd like to do now, Roland, is, uh, you know, we may have you back at some point because I think there's so much more to discover. So please keep in touch with us. And when you have more, we, we, we may want to have you back on. Uh, I think this has given our listeners a lot to think about, not only in terms of technology, but also messaging, customer relations, how they evolve their customer service experience, and even how they position their offers to prospects and the power of empathy and uh, and the feeling economy. So somebody wants to take this to the next place. Uh, how do they engage with you and what do they have to look forward to when they do? Well, uh, I, I would say, um, first of all, the, the book, The Feeling Economy, is a really good place to start because yep. that uh, has uh, all of our thinking on this topic. So that's a, that's a good place to start. And then, of course, uh, we have lots of uh, research uh, papers as well, but not everybody can read those or uh, wants to. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the book is written for a normal person. Oh, great. Well, I'm not a normal person, but I'll do the best I can. <laughs> no, I seriously think I'm going to pick up a copy. It's called The Feeling Economy, How Artificial Intelligence is Creating the Air of Empathy. And it's available on Amazon right now. I do encourage all of our listeners to go pick that up. So Roland T. Russ, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thanks very much, Adam. All right. For everybody listening, I want to thank you again for being here. We trust you enjoyed today's episode. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And until next time, have a great day. Take care.